Daniel chapter 8, hear the word of the Lord. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at the first. And I saw in the vision, and when I saw, I was in Susa, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision, I was at the Ulai Canal. I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns, and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. As I was considering, behold, a male goat from the west across the face of the earth came without touching the ground, and the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came to the ram with the two horns which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran at him in his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him and struck the ram and broke his two horns, and the ram had no power to stand before him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him. And there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Then the goat became exceedingly great, but when he was strong, the great horn was broken, and instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. Out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. It grew great, even to the host of heaven. And some of the host and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the prince of the host. And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. And a host will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offering because of transgression. And it will throw truth to the ground, and it will act and prosper. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one to, said to the one who spoke, For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary and post to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, For two thousand three hundred evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Ulai, and it called, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood. And when I, he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, Understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. And when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground. But he touched me and made me to stand up. He said, Behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia, and the goat is the king of Greece, and the great horn between his eyes is the first king. As for the horn that was broken, in place of which four other horns arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. And at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face, one who understands riddles, shall arise. His power shall be great, but not by his own power. And he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. By his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand. And in his own mind, he shall become great. Without warning, he shall destroy many. And he shall even rise up against the prince of princes and he shall be broken but by no human hand. The vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true, but seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. 
Then I rose and went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. Let's pray. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. When I first became a Christian at the end of high school, I went to a church where they taught me some very good habits. And I didn't know any better, so I just did what they told me. And I'm very glad that I did. They said Christians should read the Bible. So I started reading the Bible. And they told me Christians should pray, Christians should share the gospel with others. They gave me lots of good habits that have stuck with me all these years. But I came to the Bible as a new book. I didn't know what was in it, really. It was mysterious to me, and I began to read it. And as I began to read the Old Testament, I was fascinated by a fact. And the fact was perhaps very obvious to many, but it was new to me. And that was this, that the histories that were being told in the Old Testament actually took place in our world. Now, I had this idea of the Bible that it was some sort of ethereal book that kind of floated above human history. And as I was reading along, I found out there were places like Egypt. Well, I had heard of Egypt. I didn't know much about world history, but I, I certainly knew something about Egypt, at least that it existed. And as I read along, I started hearing things like about Syria and Syria. And I, I thought I'd heard of those places. And, and then about Babylon and, and other places, the media and Persia. I thought, well, I think I've heard of these places. I think these places actually existed in time and in space. And it was fascinating to me to realize that this word of God speaks in human language to our human history and to our human lives, and it gives us God's perspective on world history. And that was, you, you might say, well, that's an obvious thing, but it wasn't obvious to me, and it was a beautiful discovery to me to find God's word speaking to our world in human language, and interpreting our world according to his perfect perspective. And that's what we have in the book of Daniel. But here we have strange language, don't we? And we started last week with this strange language. This language has grown to be called apocalyptic language. And Daniel is, is really the first, although there's some of that in Ezekiel, but he's really the first one in which we find this. And if you've read the New Testament, you'll say, well, I think I've heard some things like this, and you probably have, in the book called The Apocalypse, or the book of Revelation. And so this is strange language, and so we're going to look at this language. But fortunately, in chapter 7, last week, and in chapter 8, we have the, the vision, the strange vision, and then we have an angel helps us interpret it. And so it's not all on us to interpret this vision. But then we go further with more information that we have in the rest of the Bible, the New Testament, and we can even add more interpretation to say, oh, this is how that played out. So what we're going to do is look at the vision, look at the interpretation that Gabriel gives of the vision, and then we're going to see if we can take some steps beyond that with information that they didn't have at the time. Now, this backs up to before the end of the history section, and it places us in the time of Belshazzar, the last king of Babylon, whom we read about in the history section that he fell before Darius the Mede. Now, this is the second vision during that time, and it says in verse 1, in the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar. So this is 
two years after the vision we saw last week in chapter 7. And it says he had a vision. Last week it was a dream. And we know it was a dream because he said it was a dream. We don't know exactly how this one came. If it was in a dream or if it was some awake sort of vision. But he said he had a vision that appeared to him, Daniel. And he said, in the vision, when I saw, I was in Susa, the citadel. Now, Susa became the capital of the Media Persian Empire. It became the capital. And you may recognize Susa from the book of Esther, if you read the book of Esther. Now, we don't know if Daniel was physically there, because visions are strange things, aren't they? We don't know if he was physically in Susa doing some official business, or more likely, he was in the vision in Susa. He saw himself in Susa in the province of Elam. And here we find three creatures. Now, if you were here last week, we had four beasts, and they were monstrous beasts. They were mashups of various categories of animal, and they were horrific beasts. Now, we find three creatures that aren't so horrific. We find a ram, a goat, and then we have a horn, which seems to act independently of the goat from which it was taken. Now, as you read about the ram, he's the one that shows up first, and that's in verse 3. And here there's a ram, and this ram is, is, has this characteristic. It has two horns. They were long horns, and one of the horns was longer than the other, and the longer horn came up second. It came up second, but eventually grew longer. And this ram charged in three directions. It says it went westward and northward and southward. And no beast could stand before it. So wherever it went, it was able to trample anyone who was in its way. And it did as it pleased, and it became great. So that's the ram. Um, and then verse 5. As he was thinking about the ram, another animal showed up, and this was a goat. And this goat comes from the west, and it flies across the face of the earth without touching the ground. So it is, it is flying, literally flying across the face of the earth, and it has a conspicuous horn on its forehead. And this, this goat came to the ram, the ram whom nobody could oppose up to this point, and he rushed at this ram, and he struck the ram, he broke its two horns, and then it says in, in verse 7, and the ram had no power to stand before him. Now that should sound familiar, because no one had the power to stand before the goat. But now no one had the power to stand before the ram. So what goes around comes around, and it says that he cast him to the ground, trampled on him, and there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Then the goat became exceedingly great. We already read that the ram became great, and now the goat became what? Exceedingly great. So greater than the ram before him. And then it says, kind of an anticlimax in verse 8. The goat became exceedingly great. But when he was strong, the great horn was broken, gone. Just like that. So he became exceedingly great, and he was broken, he's gone. But out of there came four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. Okay, now, out of one of those horns. So now we're down to, we have a goat, we have a horn, the horn's broken, four horns grow in its place, but then out of one of those horns 
comes a little horn. So this is down the road a bit. Out of one of those horns, there is a little horn, and this little horn also became what? Verse 8, or 9. Exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. The glorious land. What would the glorious land be in the Bible? Yes, exactly. Judah, Jerusalem, Israel, good. And it says that here, once again, this is a repeated phrase, it grew, grew great, and this is interesting, even to the host of heaven, and some of the host, some of the stars, it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the prince of the host. And the, 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 the language is, is somewhat difficult here, but it says the regular burnt offering was taken away from him. So who is the him? It looks like the him here refers to the prince of the host. So the prince of the host lost his regular burnt offering, and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. Apparently the princes, uh, the prince of the host, his sanctuary was overthrown, and a host will be given over to it. A host is a multitude, an army. Host will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offering because of transgression. And it will throw truth to the ground, and it will act and prosper. So this horn became so great, it trampled some of the host of heaven. It challenged the, the prince of the host of heaven. It set itself up against and took away that prince's regular offerings. And it set itself up against the truth, and it succeeded. In verse 12. Throw truth to the ground, it will act and prosper. Okay, this is the vision. Then Daniel heard a conversation. Do you remember last week? Daniel was, he was confused about the vision, so he went up and he asked somebody who was standing there. Well, now he overhears a conversation. And this conversation was between two holy ones, two holy ones, two saints. But apparently these were some sort of angelic creatures. And there's a question here. And apparently they were seeing the vision as well, or they were part of the vision. A holy one, verse 13, one was speaking, and another holy one said to the one who spoke, How long? How long? And that's a, that's a question you find through the Old Testament, isn't it? How long? You read the Psalms, and they ask the question, How long? And, and what's the context of how long, the how long question? What is it? Suffering, exactly. How long will we have to put up with this? So read the Psalms, and you hear the Psalms crying out, How, how long, Lord? Will, will the ungodly succeed? How long, Lord, will the godly have to suffer this? How long will I have to suffer this? And here's that question. How long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary and hosts to be trampled underfoot? Then he said to me, for 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. So here is a prediction that it will be 2,300, apparently, days, evenings, and mornings, and then the sanctuary shall be restored. So the sanctuary of the prince of the host is taken away, and then it will be restored after the 2,300 evenings. Now, after this, um, Daniel sought to understand it in verse 15. He did not understand it immediately, and uh, so he sought to understand it. And once again, fortunately, here we have a help, and he had a help. But not all of the details of the vision are, are interpreted. For example, the 2,300 days are not interpreted. That's about six years and four months. 
but there looks like there's something symbolic going on there. But that's something that we don't have a, an authoritative interpretation about. And so that has caused, as you might imagine, some speculation about what those 2,300 days might be. But it is a, a limited time. And in that limited time, or after that limited time, the sanctuary shall be restored. So Daniel's wondering about this. What can this all mean? And then he hears a man's voice. A man's voice. And it was between... Before that, verse 15, actually before the man's voice, there was one having the appearance of a man. So behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. Then I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Uli, and it called, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So once again, it's, it's not real clear. And remember, this is a vision. And so strange things happen in visions. And so we, we have someone who looks like a man standing in front of Daniel, and then there's a voice of a man speaking to the one who looks like a man. So we have a man's voice speaking to one who looks like a man. And then that man's voice says, Gabriel, this is the, the, uh, one of the, the couple times in the Old Testament and in the whole Bible, really, where we have angels who are named. So now we know the one who looks like a man is an angel, and it's the angel Gabriel. Gabriel. So what would the voice of a man be? Who would be commanding Gabriel to explain the vision to Daniel? Probably the voice of God. But notice that here, the voice of God is the voice of a man. So God is speaking in human language. The angel is appearing as a man. And then the Gabriel addresses Daniel, and he calls him son of man. Verse 17, he came near to where I stood. When he came, I was frightened. That's what universally happens when angels show up. But he said to me, understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. And it's not clear. Is that supposed to be comforting? Because he, Daniel falls down. He's afraid. And the angel says to him, Gabriel says to him, this is for the time of the end. So I don't know if that's to comfort him to say that it's not going to happen right away. And Daniel then just fell out. He just fell into a, a deep sleep in verse 18. And then after apparently a brief nap, uh, his face to the ground, Gabriel touched him and made him to stand up. So is he still in the vision? Is he awake now? It's, it's not particularly clear, but there's, there's some mystery about how this all functioned. And then we get the interpretation. He said, verse 19, here's the beginning. I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. Now, we need to, to be, uh, to interpret in context here, because we, when we hear the time of the end, we're thinking the end, the end of all things. We're thinking the end of, of history. But the context here is the time of the end of the suffering, because that's the question. How long will God's people be oppressed? Well, 2,300 days, and then it'll be over. And this refers to that time of the end, the end of that, that period of suffering, and that's how the angel actually describes it as well. So, um, this is the beginning of the interpretation. Verse 20, the ram. And by the way, by the way, um, notice, and this is, a, this is a cautionary thing for us, notice how in this kind of literature, the images are very fluid. They're very flexible. So, notice what happens here. In verse 20, he begins to interpret. As for the ram that you saw with the two horns... These are the kings of Media and Persia. 
Okay, we've already seen two visions about the kings of Media and Persia. We saw the statue that was in the dream of Nebuchadnezzar, and the kings of Media and Persia were the chest of silver. So Media and Persia, chest of silver. And then we saw last week, we saw that the kings of Media and Persia were like a beast. They were like a bear that devoured much flesh. And now the kings of Media and Persia are like what? Like a ram. So, so don't, don't force these images too much. You can see that there's, there's a great deal of flexibility here, and each of these images will say something different about what's being represented. So these are the, the two, uh, the, I'm sorry, these are the kings of Media and Persia. And so we're looking at the second and third kingdoms. So in the other visions, we were looking at the four kingdoms. We were looking at Babylon, Median, Persia, Greece, and Rome. And now we're focusing in on these middle two. We're focusing on the, Gre the Media Persian kingdom and the Greek king. So the interpretation continues. The ram represents the king of Media and Persia. And the goat um, represents the king of Greece. And the prominent horn was the first king of that kingdom of Greece. And what did that, what did that uh, goat do? It flew across out of the west. So if you're in Persia, where is Greece? It's to the west. So it flew out of the west, and it slammed into the ram, and it destroyed the ram. And then it says that that king was broken off, and four horns were four lesser kingdoms that grew up in the place of that first king of Greece. Now, um, then he goes on and he talks about, apparently, although he did not explicitly mention the little horn, but he explains the little horn as one of the later kings of the kingdom of Greece. Okay, you with me here? So we have Media and Persia, and that's, that's trampled by Greece, but the king that trampled, he's, he dies, and four kingdoms grow up in his place, and then in one of those four kingdoms, later on, there's a little horn. So you with us? Yep, okay, good. So we're now we're down to that little horn that came out of one of the four horns that came out of that prominent horn that was broken off. All right, good. Now, um, this king, this king would become exceedingly great. This little horn would become exceedingly great, and he would be bold, he would be clever, he would be cunning, he would be deceitful, he would be very successful, and... He would destroy many mighty men, and he would destroy particularly the saints, the holy ones. Look at verses 24 and 25. His power shall be great, but not by his own power. Interesting. Not by his own power. And he shall cause fearful destruction, shall succeed in what he does, and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. By his cunning he shall make deceit prosper under his hand, and in his own mind he shall become great. Without warning he shall destroy many, and he shall even rise up against the prince of princes, and he shall be broken, but by no human hand. And this helps us interpret verse 11. It says, it became great, even as great as the prince of the host. Now that sounds like he became as great as God, the prince of the host, but now it says, he became great, where? It says, in his own mind. So he was as great as God in his own mind, and he challenged God in his own mind. But then it says, once again, it's very, very quick, isn't it? 
He's, he's there challenging God, thinking he's as great as God, and all of a sudden, oh, he's broken. And it says, by no human hand. If you were here for Daniel chapter 2, that, that expression should jump out at you. By no human hand. The statue in Daniel chapter 2, there was the head of gold, Babylon, the chest of silver, probably media, Persia, the, the middle of, uh, of bronze, probably Greece, and then the legs of, of uh, iron and the feet of clay, probably uh, uh, Rome. And then during that, during that fourth kingdom, there was a stone hewn out of a mountain, but what? Not by human hand. This is the second time we've seen this. Not by human hand, which is an indirect way of saying by whom? Jesus. By God, exactly. So here, the second time we have that. So this, this prince, this, this great king is uh, trying to oppose and the, the prince of princes, and he's all of a sudden broken. And then in verse 26, the vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true, but seal up the vision for it refers to many days from now. So the vision would last these 2300 days, the time of oppression, but it wasn't yet. That wasn't the situation yet. It would be many days later. Now, um, Daniel should therefore seal it up, which was not to hide it away, but to seal it for safekeeping. Keep this because you're going to you're going to need this later. After you're gone, Daniel, the people of God will need this later. So make sure it is it is kept safe. Now, Daniel was so overcome that he was sick. Verse 27. And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Then I rose and went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. Now, this is Daniel. Now, remember what Daniel did. Daniel was a wise man, and what did Daniel do? He interpreted dreams and visions because God gave him the interpretation of dreams and visions. He did that several times in the first chapters. And here's Daniel, just like in chapter 7. Once again in chapter 8, he's saying what at the end of it? I, I don't get it. I, I don't understand. He was so appalled by it that he was sick. That should be a, a, a caution to us about how dogmatic we are about our understanding of some of these dreams and visions. Now, we have the authoritative interpretation, don't we? And this one's really clear. It's actually more clear than last week's. Here, it's, it's, it's the kings of Media and Persia. And then it's the, the first king of Greece, and then it's a later king of one of those successor kingdoms of the kingdom of Greece. So this is, this is one of the clearest interpretations. And we also have an advantage beyond Daniel. So we ought to be humble in our interpreting, but we have advantage that Daniel didn't have. And what's that? History. We live much later than Daniel did. And many things have happened, including the things that are described here. We have the advantage of later centuries. And here's some of the things that we know. So connect these to the vision as I, as I tell you some of these details of world history. We know that the kingdom of Medo-Persia expanded principally in three directions, and that the Persians became more powerful than the Medes, but they were second. The Medes were the first ones, and the Persians came later, and they became more powerful. Do you remember the two horns? That there was the long horn, and then the longer horn, and that longer horn came later. So that fits very, very well. We also know that the Greeks, led by Alexander the Great, 
were a, a very rapid army, and they, they conquered very swiftly the Medo-Persian Empire, plus many, many more empires as well. We also know from history about Alexander's early death in his 30s, and that his kingdom was divided among four of his generals into four separate kingdoms that quickly began fighting with each other. And we also know that one of the later kingdoms of what's called the Seleucid Kingdom, that it was a dynasty, and in that dynasty there was a ruler called Antiochus IV. Antiochus IV, he had a nickname that he particularly liked, and it was Epiphanes. Epiphanes, and maybe you, you recognize that word, the epiphany. Uh, epiphany is the appearing, the manifestation, the, the illustration. And on the coins of his, his day, uh, there uh, it was written, God revealed, God appearing. And that's kind of the concept that he had of himself. And what he did, we know this from history, he overran Judea, he persecuted faithful Jews, he instituted Greek customs and outlawed Jewish customs. He desecrated the temple and he stopped the regular sacrifices. And we also know that the Jews rededicated the temple on December 14, 164 BC. So this is, this is some 400 years after Daniel, but it happened very, very clearly uh, the way it was described here. And this is, this is one of those prophecies that really lines up very neatly with what we know about later world history. Now, as we take a step back and look at this, we can, we can have a few different reactions. One is, wow, that's amazing. That's amazing that, that this was predicted hundreds of years beforehand and it was fulfilled. God did what he said he would do. And it's interesting that, that most scholars, many scholars don't agree on many details about Daniel, but there's a, a fairly solid agreement about, about the fulfillment of what is described here. And uh, some of those who are skeptics about the possibility of predictive prophecy actually agree with the interpretation. And that's why they reject it. They say, this is too exact. This is too good. It can't happen which is really more, a, 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 not, a, not a scholarly position, but a, a skeptical position. But it's interesting that they agree with the interpretation. So even the skeptical scholars agree with the fulfillment here. So we, we, we look at this and we say, this is amazing. God prepared his people beforehand so that when this took place, they would have this sealed up and they would have it ready and they would know that this was prepared for them for that time. And so they would know how to deal with it. Another thing is this. When we take a step back and look at Daniel up to this point, we recognize that this second section of Daniel is a very helpful and necessary balance to the first section. Both, of course, are true, and they give us two different truths. In the first section, who always comes out on top? The Jews. Who always comes out on top? The faithful believers, not only do they come out on top, they're promoted, they're recognized, they're given honors, they're given riches. And if that's all we had, we would have perhaps that view of faith, that that's what it always does. 
it always brings about riches and prosperity and advancement in this world. And, and I say that because there are those who preach that. There are many who preach that these days. That that is the inevitable result of faith. But in order to preach that, you have to stop at Daniel 6. That happens sometimes. It happened there. But the second half paints a different picture. What's happening to the saints? What's happening to the faithful ones? What's happening to the holy ones? They're the ones who are being killed. They're the ones who are being persecuted. And so this is a, an important balance. Because here we have, on the one hand, we have the victory of faith that, that is even recognized by the world. And the, the believers are on top. And then we have the other victory of faith, where the believers are being trampled under the, the heel of the unbelievers. And they're being crushed and sacrificed. And that, too, is the victory of faith. We're on the bottom of the pile. This is an important thing and throughout the, this book and throughout the scripture. This truth, the outcome, the outcome is in God's hands. And it could go either way. Here he's, he's predicting, he's giving them a book. He's saying, Daniel, seal this up so when this happens, they know that I'm the one who planned this from centuries ago, or told it, planned it from forever, and told it centuries ago. So the outcome is in God's hands. But what's in our hands? That's the call. That's the call of this book. It's to remain faithful. If you're given a raise, remain faithful. If you're given a promotion, remain faithful. If you win the highest award, remain faithful. If you're tossed to the bottom of the pile, if you're overlooked, if you're persecuted, if you're rejected for being a believer, remain faithful. The outcome is in God's hands. Faithfulness is his call to us. You may be aware that the last book of the Old Testament ends at about, about 400 B.C. And then, of course, the New Testament begins at the beginning of the Christian era. And so we have a period of about 400 years where there's not anything in our Old Testament. So it's interesting that God prepared that so that in Daniel there would be something that refers to that period where we don't have Holy Scripture. But there are books that were written, of course. You perhaps have heard of books that are they're often called apocryphal books. And um, in, in, uh, throughout Christian history, these books have been, and Jewish history as well, these been, books have been instructive books. And you perhaps have heard about the books of Maccabees. Well, the books of the Maccabees is a first Maccabees and a second Maccabees. And these were written during the time of Antiochus IV, or shortly thereafter, and they were describing what the Jews were going through. I want to read you a little bit about that and the attitude of the believers in those days. Here it says, This evil hit them hard and was a severe trial. The Gentiles filled the temple with licentious revelry. They took their pleasure with prostitutes in the sacred precincts. They also brought foreign things inside and heaped the altar with impure offerings forbidden by the law. It was forbidden either to observe the Sabbath or to keep the traditional festivals or to admit to being a Jew at all. 
On the monthly celebration of the king's birthday, the Jews were driven by brute force to eat the entrails of the sacrificial victims. And on the feast of Dionysus, they were forced to wear ivy wreaths and join in the procession in his honor. At the instigation of the inhabitants of Ptolemais, an order was published in the neighboring Greek cities to the effect that they should adopt the same policy of compelling the Jews to eat the entrails and should kill those who refused to change over to Greek ways. Their miserable fate was there for all to see. For instance, two women were brought to trial for having had their children circumcised. They were paraded through the city with their babies hanging at their breasts, then flung down from the fortifications. Other Jews had assembled in caves near Jerusalem to keep the Sabbath in secret. They were denounced to Philip and were burned alive since they scrupled to defend themselves out of regard for the holiness of the day. But now listen to the interpretation, or rather the exhortation to the readers. Now I beg my readers not to be disheartened by these calamities, but to reflect that such penalties were inflicted for the discipline of our race and not for its destruction. It is a sign of great kindness that acts of impiety should not, let, not be let alone for long, but meet their due recompense at once. The Lord did not see fit to deal with us as he does with the other nations, with them he patiently holds his hand until they have reached the full extent of their sins. But upon us he inflicted retribution before our sins reached their height. So he never withdraws his mercy from us, though he disciplines his people by calamity. He never deserts them. Let it be enough for me to have recalled this truth. After this short digression, I must continue with my story. And he continues on to talk about all the sufferings and the persecutions. Did you, did you get the interpretation there? He says, with other nations, God lets their sins get to the max, and then he takes them out. They're gone. And we see that time and time again. All gone, all gone, all gone. They're taken out. They're broken off, not by human hand. They're destroyed because their sins meets their zenith, met their zenith, and God took them out. And he says, this is actually merciful, that God would discipline us before the time, before our sins get to their maximum expression, so that we might be disciplined and called back to him. That's a mercy. He never, ever lets us go. The theme of the righteous sufferer is all through Scripture. Read the Psalms. Read the prophets. Read Daniel. He goes all through the Old Testament. And it finds its culmination in Jesus. Because you want to find a righteous sufferer. Look at Jesus. Peter wrote this. But this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So if we ever are tempted to think that 
the suffering of the righteous is in vain, we need to recall that the suffering of the righteous is our salvation. It is the righteous for the unrighteous to bring us to God. He bore his sins in our body on that tree that he might bring us to God. And then Peter explains to us this is also not only our salvation, this is our example. These are the footsteps that are laid out for Christians to walk in them. I invite you and encourage you to go to Voice of the Martyrs website sometime, persecution.com, and there's a section called icommittopray.com. And there you will read about what our brothers and sisters are experiencing around the globe. Not all of them are negative. Some of them are positive. But many of our brothers and sisters are suffering. This is real. Maybe not in our comfortable context here yet, but this is real. Myanmar. Authorities hunting down church leader for his faithful witness. China, authorities de de detain family from early reign covenant church. Uganda, pastors blessed with motorbikes. Nigeria, Christians discouraged after months of relentless attacks. Nepal, pastor dies after contracting COVID-19. Ethiopia, congregation rejoices at new building. Cuba, government prohibits church from meeting. Cuba, more than 100 new believers baptized. In other words... The results are up to God. The calling to remain faithful is what he gives to us. Let's pray. Our God, how little we know in our comfortable land of the kind of suffering that our brother, brothers and sisters throughout the ages have experienced. We thank you for the saints in the days of Antiochus Epiphanes who remained firm and even unto death. We thank you most of all for Jesus, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth, who bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, that you might receive us, having given all our sins to him, and having given us his righteousness through faith. And Lord, we pray that we would have the fortitude by your spirit to follow in his footsteps. The outcome is up to you, Lord, and we pray that we would be faithful until the end, whatever that end might be. And we pray for our brothers and sisters around the globe, for whom Daniel is not a theoretical book, but a daily reality. We pray that their faith would not fail them, that they would be strong until the end and receive that, that crown of life, which waits for those who Believe and keep believing, no matter what happens, until the end. And we pray this in Christ's name.